I'm Karen. And I'm Michelle. We're sisters. And homeschool moms. Welcome to the Layers of Learning podcast. Where we talk about family style homeschooling. Welcome to the podcast today. We are going to talk about how to teach history. So first we're going to start by talking about what is history. And then we're going to talk about ways you can teach it. And then we're going to talk about methods to teach it in your homeschool, kind of the philosophy behind it, and also what you actually do on day-by-day kind of basis. So Michelle, when you started homeschooling, did you teach history pretty much the same way that you do currently? You've been doing this for a lot of years. Have you changed your methods? I have changed. Mostly, I still teach it in order. And I still use a spine. We use a, a, a history encyclopedia kind of as our spine to keep us on track. And because you can't find information on all the history topics in normal books. But the thing I've added is that we do a lot more hands-on than we used to do. In, in fact, I used to really do no hands-on. I would have my kids read stuff and then they would draw a picture and I would write for them. This is when they were you know, really small. Mm-hmm. So when somebody asks you, how do you teach history? What's your response? That is such a big subject. And that's why we're doing a whole podcast about it today. <laughs> but but I usually will say something like, well, do it in order. And then as you're going through history, you know, you use living books. I like real books. I don't like textbooks. I don't want to buy a packaged curriculum with, with a textbooky kind of feel. I want my kids to be reading historical fiction. I want to be reading books from authors who love their subject. And then I like to add in hands-on stuff. And we don't do a hands-on activity for every single little thing, but we will do, you know, maybe three or four hands-on crafts or activities in a month where we're getting really into history. And it helps create these hooks for kids. It, it makes it memorable. Okay. So Karen, what do you, what do you do with history? What's your basic approach? Well, I will say this. You're the one who taught me how to teach history in my early homeschooling years. So I do it very much the way that you do, Michelle. For sure, we've always taught history in order. When I was in school, I was always confused about when things were happening and how things were related to each other. When I learned about a historical figure, it wasn't in context of where they were or when they lived. And I never knew how things connected. I I remember in fifth grade, we did this project about the Aztecs. And each, like our teacher split us into groups. And so each group was doing a different hands-on project about the Aztecs. And it was a great project. I remember vividly how the Aztecs built their village or their town right on top of the lake. And that that's what my project was about. And I remember that. But I also remember having no idea when the Aztecs happened in history. I had no concept of when that was. I thought they were a very, very ancient people. That was my impression. And that turns out not to be true. They actually were more in the colonial era, they were much more modern. Yeah, I think that was the problem with my early education in history is it just lacked connections. I didn't understand what history could teach me because I didn't have any contextual basis for the people, the places, the events. I I didn't have a complete picture in my mind. So that's been one of my goals with my kids is to help them see the big picture of history and to be able to know when and where things happened. So let's back up and just start with, you know, when we say history, exactly what do we mean? First of all, history starts with the earliest civilizations. And I think that's something that sometimes people get confused about because, you know, we know that there were cavemen and, you know, there were, there's this whole earth history that happens before the subject of history. But the academic subject of history starts with, the earliest civilizations. Well, and that's not because the people who came before weren't important. It's because the people who came before didn't write down their stories in any way. We don't have an archaeological record of them, not much. And we don't have any written records at all of them. They didn't build cities that we can go back and excavate. So the academic subject of history is just the story of human civilization. That's what it is. I often tell my kids... This is why it's so important for you to write down your stories, because anyone who didn't have a record of their people or their lives or anything that happened, that kind of goes away with time. And so history, we're looking at 
hey, let's look at the story of the people who have lived on the earth. And it's totally fine to teach about cavemen, but there's not a lot of actual information that we know when we don't have any written records. So so layers of learning starts with the earliest civilization. Yeah. We, we start with Sumer and the Yellow River Valley in China and the Norte Chico people in South America. That's That's the beginning of the subject of history. And we're looking at how did people create the first civilizations as they began to settle down and be able to live in a place? How did that happen? What contributed to them being able to do that? And so, yeah, we always start there in history. And then as we go along, it includes the story of human beings, nations, cities, especially the great figures in history, the, the heroes, the even the villains. The villains, too, definitely. But we learn about those people who somehow contributed and made a difference in the world, whether good or bad. And I think we look at those things because it teaches us lessons for now. It's important to look back so that we can be educated for our lives now. So right, right now, we are living at a point in history. We're making history. We're part of that whole subject. And if we study history, we can study all of the things that led up to now. We can see this progression, and some of it is progress, and some of it is regression. You know, we human societies tend to go through these cycles. And there's war and destruction, and there's also building and great art. And looking at all of this together is the subject of history. I think that's one of the really interesting things that I have noticed as I've taught my kids history I think a lot of people believe that we started with almost nothing in the history of the world and then we've little by little built up to this point that we have the internet and technology and invention. And actually, if you look back in history, my kids were amazed when we were studying ancient Greece and ancient Rome and they were saying if they had just had the internet, they probably had pretty much what we have today, mom. They, they were a pre-industrial society. They had factories. So anciently... Yes. They were very much like we are. And then it collapsed yeah, with the and, fall of Rome. And even before the Roman Empire, the Mohenjo-Daro people in India were at the same level that Rome was, but, but you know, a thousand years earlier. So it has happened over and over through history. So it's really interesting. One of the things that we learn from that is, hey, next year, tomorrow, who knows? We could be reverting back in the exact same way that they did. We are not immune in any way. And... It hasn't just progressed and progressed and progressed. It has gone through cycles of change over time. And so there are lessons all along the way if we learn history in that lens. And partly for that reason, Karen, that, that we can see progression and we can see cycles, partly for that reason we study history in order, and partly for the reason we already talked about that it's important to have context. You need to understand you know, things that are going on at the same time in history. You need to understand that this person came before that person, that this war led to this event. Those progressions are important in history. So to teach it in order, I think is vital. I remember when we were studying U.S. history, I took our timeline squares and I had the dates blacked out of them. And I told my kids, I want you to put these events in order. And so they started to look at things like the Boston Tea Party and, you know, different events that had occurred throughout that era. And they put them in order. And the first time they got it completely wrong. And I was showing them how, look, this led to this, which led to this. And it took them three or four times of putting it together, but they were finally able to do it. And it was amazing how much they learned when they started to connect those events in a timeline. And we can do that, you know, in isolated units like when we learn about early U.S. history but we can also do that in a more global context looking at how different peoples affected each other and really understanding how we are connected over time. And I think you mentioned timelines. Timelines are really really important for history because of that. You can't actually study history completely in chronological order. It's not possible because you're studying India and there's things happening in South America at the exact same time period. We so live you, in a big world. Yeah, it's not so, all happening. So you in one study city. so you study India and then you study South America and the timeline connects the two. You can see, oh, these things were happening at the same time, or this happened just before that. And you can see how 
things are connected. You mentioned the Aztecs, Michelle. I remember as a kid learning about the Incas, Aztecs, and Mayas, and they were all together, always. They were grouped together, those three peoples. And I had no idea that they weren't next-door neighbors living at the same time period in history. They were actually separated by thousands of years. The Mayas were already dead and gone for 800 years or so before the Inca people even came on the scene. Yeah, but because they're so often grouped in, you know, your elementary school type history lessons, you have no context for that. So when you teach things in order, it's really helpful for you to see how one thing led to the next thing and where they fit in the big picture. The next important principle after teaching things in order is to teach them in context. And I think in order is part of the context, but there's even more to it than that. I had an amazing history teacher who was teaching us about ancient times. And I remember him telling us, hey, you cannot judge the people in ancient times by our standards today. And it took me a little while to realize what he meant. But he's really right. We tend to look at historical figures and kind of imagine what we would do knowing what we know today in their situation. And we can't really do that. They didn't live in the same situation that we did. A good example of that, Karen, is Genghis Khan. I do not like Genghis Khan. He is not my friend. (laughs) He, He conquered approximately half of the world and killed millions of people in the process. So, you know... To me, that's like, um, no, you're not a good guy. Not a hero. However, I read Genghis Khan by Khan Igledon. I can't remember if that's the exact title. But Khan Igledon wrote these this series of books about Genghis Khan. And I, I read the first one that was about his childhood. And I was floored. Because I had no concept before I read that book of what his world was like. I didn't understand the moral context he came from. I didn't understand the way he grew up. The Mongol world back in the that time was brutal. And in order to survive, you had to be brutal. You had to be harsh. You had Life wasn't worth what we think of it as being worth today. Individuals didn't matter. It, all that mattered was the tribe and the survival of, of your tribe and the power of your tribe. And it was all about the family. It wasn't about individuals and it didn't matter if someone died along the way. And that's not how we think of things today. That is not where our moral focus is. And so reading that made me realize, okay, I still don't really like him, right? But it made me realize where he was coming from and why he was the way he was. I don't know if the word has excused him from some of it, but but at least it made me see the lens that he was looking through instead of the lens that I'm looking through. I think in the end, that is a lot more instructive than you saying, he's a bad guy. He was a horrible guy. You know, you're you're seeing it in a more valuable way because you took the time to understand the culture and the time that he lived in. So when we put things in context, instead of just judging them based on our current situation, it actually teaches us a lot more, not less. It's not us accepting the person, but it's us understanding what makes people do the things they do and how the society and the culture that we live in can affect us, it teaches us a lot more than we could ever learn without the context. I think it actually does help you to look at yourself too, because we may think that we have the moral high ground over Genghis Khan, but how many things will people look back at us in a hundred years from now and be very critical of the way that we're living our lives? I mean, we can't know what it'll be like in a hundred years from now, but we do know that it won't be the same. Even from our childhood to today, it's really different. Yes. Now add thousands of years, hundreds of years, you know, add some real passage of time and you realize things change really quickly in this world. What's acceptable changes really quickly. The way we view things, it changes. So that's part of the context is is being able to see people not from just our perspective, but from their perspective and from the lens of the time in which they lived. And that's an important aspect of teaching history to your kids. Michelle, while you were speaking, it made me think of when we were writing about the United States of America. And that was some of the hardest writing we've ever done. In, in, the, in the layers of learning curriculum. You mean. Yeah. yeah. As yeah. we were writing about that, I was sitting there going, this is all I've ever lived. I mean, I've traveled the world, but I have only ever lived... In the U.S. So how do you write about it as though 
you're not from the U.S. Like, I don't even know how Americans are different in some ways because it's all I've ever known, right? You're in the middle of it. Yeah. yeah. So we had to stop and ask ourselves, what is culturally accepted here? I mean, I remember talking about rock and roll and blue jeans and, you know, different things like that. But we had to really examine, wait a minute, what does make this nation what it is? So context is a really interesting thing because sometimes we're so ingrained in our own time and place in the world that we don't take the time to see how it's similar or different to other times and places. I think as we come to know more about different peoples and cultures, we can begin to connect them. We can begin to compare both our current time and place, but also make connections between the historical peoples that we're studying. Yeah, I think an interesting thing is that we were speaking about the Incas. We're gonna, we're just probably gonna keep going back to these people because they're, they're cool. But um, they're they, actually misunderstood, which they, is they are. what's interesting. So they conquered the Andes in 1438. That is only 54 years before Columbus sailed to the New World. That is a very short time. They were not an ancient people. They weren't. They weren't an ancient people. I mean, of course they have ancient ancestors and they go back, but so does everybody. I mean, we're talking about the Inca Empire. It was it was only 54 years old when when Columbus made it to the Caribbean, and it was a few years, a very few short years after that, that there were Spanish conquistadors marching up into their land. So, they they had been around for less than 100 years when they were conquered, and and I don't think that's something that people realize or conceptualize, and then. Also, at the same time the Incas were conquering the Andes, the British and the French were fighting the Hundred Years' War. Joan of Arc had just died seven years before the, the, the Andes were conquered. Yeah, we don't think about Joan of Arc living in the same decade, but she did. She did, yeah. And at that same time, Jean Van Eyck was the court painter for the Burgundians. We don't know when he lived when we study him unless we're studying it in context. But all of these people lived around the same time as each other. And when we start to make those connections and get the bigger picture of the world, it changes the view that we have of history. And those, the interesting thing is that those people are all actually connected in real ways. When the Hundred Years' War was finally over, and Joan of Arc was essential to that ending, the war, mm -hmm. and Britain did not conquer France. And this is, this is very important because it changes the balance of power in Europe. It means that the Spanish are free to go and explore other places because they're not having to defend their borders from the English. And they go and they end up conquering the Incas. Well, these, are, these things are connected to each other. And, you know, that Jan van Eyck had the money and had the power from the Burgundians to, to make this great art you know, that was all behind his great art is because the Burgundians were switching sides with the English and the French and because the Renaissance was happening by then. I mean, these things are all very, very connected to each other, but you can't realize that if you're not using a timeline, if you're not teaching history in order, if you're not looking at the context of things. And I think as you begin to study all of the historical time periods and peoples, you also have to continually make connections with your own world that you live in, your own life, your own time. You've got to compare those things, the historical events and the people that you study and the actions and decisions that were made. They need to be compared with your own experiences of real life, of what you're doing today. Right. So even though you have never been a medieval crusader, you have been a human being. And so that alone connects us with people of the past and, and other places and other cultures and other times. And we can say, again, with the understanding that their times and, and places and cultures shaped them into what they were, just like ours is shaping us, but you still need to put yourself in that position and say, what would it have been like? What, how would I have behaved if I had been in that world? And what lessons can I learn from what those people did? You know, what did they do right? What did they do wrong? And how does that apply to my world today? Because events are happening right now in real time that have parallels to the past. You know, where people are people, people do things that are similar in all times. They're seeking for power, they're making great art, they're, they're building businesses, they are deciding which direction their country is going to take. That has happened in the past just like it's happening today. A lot of the study of history is the study of human nature. 
It really is. I, I think that's actually the most important reason to study history is because you learn what are people made of? What do they do? And then what are the consequences of the choices that they make? What happens when you overthrow your king? You know, what, what is the next step? And we can see that by looking back at the past. Basically, everything that people do now has been done before in some way. Not the exact events, but the exact kinds of choices and the character of people. And, you know, we can learn a lot if we will make connections to our lives and the events that are happening now and the events of history and the lessons that we can learn if we really look. Honestly, humanity has not done a great job of learning from the past. I think we have progressed technologically and scientifically far more than we have progressed socially or morally. And I, we do tend to look back at the people in the past and think, oh, they were morally depraved, you know, like Genghis Khan. But are we really that much further on? A lot of times I think, no, we're not. <laughs> and so I think until we can actually teach those kinds of lessons and look at that, what are what did we learn from this behavior in the past? Then we're not ever going to really change as a human race. The tools, the stuff we have, I think that changes really fast, at least especially in the modern day. Like we have different technology. When I was a kid, we did not have cell phones. Oh. <laughs> we didn't have the Internet. If you wanted to do a report for school, you had to go to the library. The card and, catalog. And fight over the one book. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that all the other kids were trying to get to. <laughs> yeah. So things change fast like that. Okay. So we mentioned before that we like to use real books and not textbooks. In the homeschooling world, a lot of people call these living books. And that comes from the Charlotte Mason philosophy, which I like that. I, I really do. I have noticed a big difference in the way that my kids are taught versus the way I was taught in school be just because of the textbook alone. I think one of the things that living books do is introduce the stories of the people instead of just mentioning them and then moving on you actually get into the lives and the stories of people in more meaningful ways biographies right. I love to read to my kids because they feel like they know the people that we are reading about as we read their biography and you do get part of that context of the world they lived in too yeah historical fiction authors are amazing people they oh, do yeah. a lot of research into their subject. And it may not be 100% accurate. We know it's not. But it still immerses you in the world in a way that you could never be immersed in it in any other way, really. You can picture it. You can imagine being part of a different place and time. And yeah, historical fiction is powerful. So, Karen, you were telling me the other day about a book called 20 and 10, which I actually haven't read, but that you read to your kids. Yes, we loved 20 and 10. It is by Claire Hatchett Bishop. It is the story of 20 French children who were in a refuge in the mountains. And a man came to them and asked them to hide 10 Jewish refugee children. And these 20 French kids agreed to do that. And he was explaining to them, you know, if you don't hide them, if you give them away, they will die. And these 20 children hid the 10 children, keeping them safe even though they were putting themselves at risk. And it was just an incredible story and a different take on the Nazi time. And it was based on a true before. story, right? It was based it was, on a true yeah. story. And it was incredible. And it was really neat that it was about kids. It's not always easy to find historical stories that are about kids, but my kids really connected because they were reading about kids their age. Another thing that I think is really valuable, in, and it fits in the same category with, historical fiction and, and living books is, is that the documentaries, because even though it's not a book, when you watch a documentary, they do a great job of bringing you into the world. They often do reenactments mm -hmm. and they've got historians that they're interviewing. They, they can be very, very powerful. Also just movies that are set in the time period. And I think world war two, there's a ton of movies from that time, but, but a lot of times in history, there are, there are movies or documentaries. It is amazing when you see period clothing, when you see the actual landscapes of places, just things that you didn't have in your mind before. Now they stick in your mind in a new way. When you just watch even a little movie clip, even if it's not an entire documentary. There was there was a some British people. I don't even know who made it. I can't remember. But some British people interviewed 
some Saxons, right, from from uh-huh. from medieval early early Britain British history. And so they have these actors who are playing Saxons, and it was fascinating because they were speaking in this dialect that you couldn't even understand, and they ha- they were interviewing the poor people, and they were interviewing the lord of the manor. And it was fascinating because the lord of the manor lives in conditions that even our poor people today don't live in, you know? Mm -hmm. And and it was really interesting to hear them interviewing them. And they had the people, the actors who were being the ancient Saxons were completely in character the whole time. So the interviewer would ask them something like, well, don't you think your servant works too much? And they're like, what are you talking about? He's not even a person. I mean, it was (laughs) like they totally... Adopted they, the attitudes of the time. within their... And it was really, really realm. fascinating. Yeah, that is interesting. I also love to incorporate primary sources as we're studying history. So a primary source is directly written at the historical time period that you're talking about. Sometimes it's a speech, sometimes it's a letter, sometimes it's a journal. But when you read those primary source materials, they also give you insight into what was in the minds and hearts of the people that lived at that time. So one of the primary sources that we have read with with my older kids, this is with my teenagers, I had them read Einhard. He wrote a little volume about Charlemagne and what was going on in Charlemagne's court. Einhard was one of Charlemagne's secretaries. So he knew him personally, worked with him every day, was part of the court, and he wrote this little volume. And it's been preserved through the ages, and we read a translation of it because we don't actually read the ancient French dialect that they were speaking in. <laughs> You need to up your game in your homeschool, Michelle. I know. (laughs) And actually, when you're looking at primary sources, if they're not from a time that's fairly recent and in your own language, then you're going to be reading a translation. And different translations are very different. And finding a modern, accessible translation is very, very important to having your kids understand and being able to have it be accessible for them. So translations matter a lot. Just keep that in mind when you're looking at primary sources. Yeah, if you struggle with one, maybe find a different translation or version. I think beyond the reading, history really will come to life when you start to integrate hands-on projects. And that's a huge part of what Layers of Learning is about, is doing the projects that will help your kids remember what they're learning. We made a medieval castle out of cardboard boxes when we were doing medieval history, this was a few years ago, but at, at the time we also made flags that went in the castle and the flags all had different parts of the oath that knights take when they're knighted. Uh-huh. And, and so we put that on the castle to show this is the, basically these are the highest ideals of the, of medieval Europe at the time that these, castles were being built and when the knights were being knighted and all that and it helped us to connect all that together and the kids remember the castle building far more than they would remember if we had just read a book so this past school year we made some period costumes that were knight costumes and it was really really fun to watch my kids create their own knight costumes and then we even went through the knighting ceremony and so costumes any kind of a project like that it's amazing how much they take away from that because they don't forget it it was memorable just creating the project right so basically the pattern we do is we read and we watch movies and then we do some kind of a project and we a a few years ago we did uh, roman costumes of a roman soldier and we just made it out of cardboard spray painted you know it was very simple very cheap kind of fun costume and my son went and put on red shorts and a red t-shirt and then he put his Roman armor over the top of that and we talked about how the Romans wore red and the reason that they did it you know so that so their enemies couldn't see them bleed and we were like that is so hardcore that is so tough you know (laughs) and it just makes it really brings to life the whole the Roman military and the way that they were highly disciplined and that's why they were able to conquer so much of the world and all of the things that go with that. So you can read a lot of textbooks on Rome and never come away with that that you came away with because you made a little period costume and talked about why they dressed the way well, they and did. And it made it so much fun. I mean, yeah. the kids loved it. You know, they, they enjoy it. I hear so often people say history is so boring. 
Well, it's not being taught right is the problem. There's nothing boring about all of the stories that have ever happened in our whole world. That's not right. boring. It's, it's everything that has ever happened. It's all the things people have done. It's all the scientific discoveries. It's all the wars. It's all of the intrigue and backstabbing. And, you know, there's nothing boring about any of that. No, stuff. no, it's fascinating. And not every single hands-on project has to be super crazy involved either. I mean, even when we make little paper foldables, we've got some really great World War II planes oh, in yeah. the Layers of Learning curriculum. And I remember when my kids made those, they were so excited about it. And it took us no time at all. You can make one plane in 10 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And yet they played with those planes for at least a few weeks. I remember them being all over our house and our schoolroom. And so not every single hands-on project has to be super involved. But just doing the projects really helps it become memorable and come to life. Have you guys ever done an acting out of a, of a historical event or like a... Yeah, my kids really like it when they act it out and I video. So we've got a few interspersed in our home videos that are priceless. It's really funny to watch all of the little scenes from history that they've enjoyed acting out. We did the Battle of Long Island one uh -huh. time, and that was that was George Washington during the American Revolution, and they were getting pounded by the British, and then they had to escape from Long Island over to, I think it was to Manhattan. Across the right? river. Yeah, across the river. And acting that whole thing out, it, we, you know, we have, some people are being the British. We have a big family, so that helps. But some <laughs> you people. Have, you have both armies. <laughs> I have both armies. So some people are being the British, and they're marching on the American positions that are entrenched, and the Americans are freaking out because they're going to die. The, <laughs> the British were definitely overpowering them, but it was fun to, and it makes it so the kids really remember, oh, this is, I mean, they will never forget that battle. They know exactly what happened. They know the troop movements because they, they acted did them. it out. Yeah. yeah. And again, we don't do that all the time. We have done that a few times because it is time intensive and you have to have big armies. <laughs> you can always bring in stuffed animal troops. Come on. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but it is it is memorable to do something like that. So along with teaching history in order and in context and with, you know, living books and great sources, as well as hands-on projects, I think one of the things that I have loved about learning history in our homeschool is that we do it as a family. I don't have every kid individually working on their own and learning their own curriculum. We're all learning the same thing together, and that has been awesome. And both of us have a pretty big spread in our kids' ages. Yeah. I've, I've got a roughly 11 years between my oldest and my youngest. So, you know, I have a, I have a six-year-old at the same time I've got one starting high school. So... You know, we, we we did all this family learning, even though we had all these different ages. Yeah, we're the same. We we span, you know, we've got the little kids and then the middle learners in the high school, and they're all learning together. And it works. The reason it works is because there isn't any history subject that isn't just as interesting to a six-year-old as it is to an 18-year-old or an adult. Or an adult, yeah. Yeah. I am amazed at the things that I learn in history, even though I've been studying it for years. It is not possible to finish studying history. Even the greatest historians in the world don't know all of the stories of history. So it's a continual thing that you learn throughout your life from the time you're little until you just stop studying. So so we do the four-year cycle where you come back around to all of the history of the world every four years. And each time that we learn it, we're learning about, say, ancient India again. You know, we've done it before and we're doing it again and we'll do it again in the future. But each time we do it, we just learn about a slightly different aspect. And it doesn't matter exactly which parts of the ancient Mughal history you're hitting on because, like you said, nobody knows it all and most people don't know any of it. So if you, if you hit on a different aspect of it each time, it's okay if one of your kids never got that. And if you remember that you are learning history in great part to apply it to your life, so that you're learning about human nature and the lessons. It doesn't matter if you are an expert on every single date, person, topic. What matters is that you looked at some of those enough to glean the lesson from it. And then know that you're going to keep on studying, keep on learning, and keep on gleaning more lessons. We don't even really memorize dates. There are a few dates in history that I think are really, really pivotal that I have my kids memorize. But for the most part, we don't memorize dates. We don't do tests on history much at all. It's more of a joyful learning and just gleaning. And when I, as an adult, am learning about any subject, I don't test myself on it. 
I'm learning about it because I either need it in my life as a tool or because it's just interesting. And I want my kids to have that kind of feeling too. So we don't do tons of tests, which helps, I think, with the family schooling because you don't have to try to make tests for each of your kids that are at a different level. That's time consuming. So what we actually do is we'll read a book together or I will assign books to the different levels of my children, depending on what it is. Yeah, some of it's more independent reading because... That's how you make the family school work, where you can have a high schooler who's learning that level and a little one who obviously isn't going to read a 20-chapter book. And our our reading happens during reading time, not so much during history time. Like, we kind of separate those. Yeah, or in bed at night or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And my kids are, most of them are very avid readers, so they read anyway. I don't have to assign a ton of stuff. But even if they're not, you can still read with them or watch a movie together as a family. We do that a lot. Even if it's just a short clip off of YouTube that's 10 minutes, we'll watch that and then we do a project together and everybody can do the project. Yeah. And we do read aloud together pretty often. That also is sometimes during our school time and sometimes other times we have read alouds going on a lot. And so sometimes the read alouds are based on history and what we're learning about in history and other times they're not. But But we continually do that together, too. And for those, I don't know what you do, Michelle, but I just kind of choose generally the more middle level books for. That's what I do. I I try to have it appeal to as many kids as possible, which means you're going to end up reading something that's written for 10 to 12 year olds. Yeah. And and usually I, I personally like those books as an adult reading them. If they're well written, it doesn't matter that the age target is younger. So my high schoolers will be interested in them, too. But the vocabulary and the storyline are not something that is above the ability of my younger kids. Especially if you're talking about it as questions come up or things like that. Yeah. Everyone can understand. One of the things that we do very differently, kind of like the individual reading for the older kids, the writing assignments that I give my kids during history does depend on their age. And sometimes I let them choose their topic or their exact assignment and sometimes I assign it but my little one might just be writing a sentence or two yeah with an illustrated picture or something like that yeah but if my 17 year old does that that's not going to be acceptable like (laughs) I require more from them as they get older so you can do family school and have the projects together and the videos together and the read alouds together but then you can kind of send them off and say okay now you're going to show me what you've learned and they get to do some writing that's more individual based on their ability and age. Even if it is the same assignment, you could say, I want you to write a report about Captain Cook. Well, the report that your six-year-old is writing is not the same as the report that your 12-year-old is writing or that your 14-year-old is writing. They can all have the same assignment, but you're getting different levels of work out of them. Right. Same thing goes with a poster or with a narration, or any writing assignment that you do, you just adjust it based on the age and ability of each And it can even take them roughly the same amount of time. A six-year-old is laboring at their one sentence, or two two sentences, or three sentences, for much longer than than a high schooler is. So a high schooler can get a page done in the time that the six-year-old is getting their few sentences done. Yeah, often narrations. In school, they usually call them short answer. Yeah, I guess they do. And in homeschool, we say write a narration, but it's basically the same thing. You're just you're just repeating the information that you have absorbed in the way that you understand it. Right. And it's a pretty simple assignment to check to see what they learned. Even the writing of it helps kids to remember what they have learned. It's It's kind of a review and a test and a writing assignment all in one. Yep. So Michelle, you have always loved history. You've kind of been a history buff for as long as I've known you and I've known you my whole life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. So what advice do you have for people who are afraid to teach history? Well, there's a couple things. First of all, a lot of people feel like they can't teach things that they don't know. And very few people know anything about history because it's not taught very well in schools. And so they feel intimidated because they're like, well, how can I possibly teach this to my kids? It's going to take me so much time and preparation. They feel like they have to study up on it before they start teaching. Well, and I think that it's helpful to remember what I said earlier. No one, not even the greatest historians, know all of history. So you might remember that everyone is learning it. So stop 
saying to yourself, I can't do it because I don't know everything. Of course you don't know everything. That's okay. And you never will. You never will. (laughs) And that's okay. The point is that you're learning. So I think it helps you to be a little less fearful if you accept that you don't know all of history, that no one does, and we're all learning. And you do not need to prepare. You do not need to cram before you teach your kids. First of all, lecturing is probably the least effective method of teaching. Especially with children. Yes. And so the most effective way to teach is actually to model learning. And so if you are learning with them, well, guess what? (laughs) You have it built in. You're actually in some ways in an advantage if you are being wowed by the new information at the same time your kids are. Mm -hmm. I think the one thing that you do need to prepare for is the gathering of resources. You know, you need to make sure that you have the books, the supplies that, you know, you need to be prepared in that vein But you don't need to actually rehearse your speech that you're going to give your kids or write up your lesson plan. You don't need to do that. You don't have to know anything at all about the Spanish Civil War before you start reading about it with your kids. Mm -hmm. You know, the second thing, aside from being afraid of teaching things you don't know, is that you shouldn't be afraid of tough subjects that come up. At some point, I mean, history is the story of human beings and human beings are horrible a lot of times, and there's going to be horrible things that come up in history. And I think it's good and proper to shield your little kids from that. But once your kids are in high school, you need to have those discussions with them. You need to talk about apartheid in South Africa. You need to talk about the Holocaust in Europe. You know, you need to talk about Pol Pot and the Cambodian killing fields. Those things need to come up in your history discussions. All over the world, bad things have happened. Slavery in the United States. We should be talking about this stuff. You know, your kids need to know the tough stuff and you need to talk about it in in in-depth ways. If they don't know the tough stuff, they will be doomed to repeat it. We do tend to repeat history. And it's important that we learn those lessons and that we are appalled by the things that we should be appalled by. Right. And I remember just this last year I read The Hunger Games and I know this is not true history. This is a fictional series, but I read The Hunger Games series to my kids and my daughter said, that is the worst book we've ever read. It I hated is. it. <laughs> yeah. And I said, I am so glad you feel that way because you're supposed to hate it. You're supposed to hate the things that happened. What happened in that with kids killing kids and then being forced into this arena and all of these dreadful things at the hands of this dictator government, you're supposed to hate that. And so very often the lessons that we learn from history, we're supposed to hate. That's part of the lesson. I remember the first time that I learned about the My Lai Massacre, which was a horrible event from the Vietnam War. American soldiers had killed a whole village of the local people in Vietnam. And I was an adult before I learned about that because we don't learn history in the United States, not very well at all. And I remember being appalled by it. But at the same time, I also had learned about that one soldier who stood up and said, no, this is wrong. And everyone around him, not just at that moment, but for years afterward, was so hard on him. He lost rank. He didn't get advancement in the military. He was blacklisted everywhere and he stood his ground. And I want my kids to hear the horrible things, but I also want them to hear how that one person can make a huge difference. That guy was just some guy. He was just some soldier. He wasn't anybody important, but he stood up and he saved dozens of lives from that village. Well, and I think part of the lesson is that life didn't get easy for him because he did the right thing. You know, you can connect that to something that your kids are doing today, right now. And they can learn lessons from the people in history who did the hard things because they were right. And all kinds of lessons are there waiting for us to learn if we will just dig in and really look at history in that context. So Michelle, we've talked a lot about the whys of history and what we teach, but a lot of people ask pretty often, how to actually do it in your homeschool day. So what is your schedule like for history? It has changed some over the years from when I first started it, but the basic schedule has stayed the same. So first of all, we teach history year round, every year, all the way from kindergarten through high school graduation. 
we always are teaching history. I, I never don't have a history class going with my kids. So that is a subject that I feel like is essential and should be taught all the time and should be taught thoroughly. So when we first started, I was doing every single day, we would read a little bit out of our history encyclopedia and the kids would draw a picture and write. That's all we did at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And it has morphed a little bit. We do it a little less frequently, but we do it for longer at a time. Is it because you're getting deeper? Yeah. And because we're doing more hands-on projects, it takes more time, but I think the trade-off is worth it. The kids are getting more out of it than they did when we were just reading and, and drawing pictures and we've, we've upped our game a little. Mm -hmm. And so now we spend one day out of our week, we do history and that is the only subject we do. We do we do math and reading and writing every day. But then our only extra subject is history on that one day. And we usually do it Mondays. And we'll spend two to three hours on history that day. So you really only do history on Monday? Or do you do the main history on Monday? Okay, so I, I guess I need to explain it this way. We, we do our family school history on Mondays. But all through the week and all the time, the kids are reading books that are history books that are about history, those living books that we discussed. And we're doing read alouds. And sometimes those are historical novels too. They're not always, but sometimes they are. And then we review frequently. We, we use your big book of knowledge, Karen, which that again, that's a fairly new thing in our homeschool, but it is fabulous. So all you do is you write down the main points that you want your kids to remember from the history lesson on a piece of paper and you are able to just ask them quick questions and do it in a game style and review this. Just stuff. constantly review. Yeah. That's how we do it. So we don't actually currently do the subject of the day in my homeschool, but it's close to that. We do history and geography on Mondays and Wednesdays and we do science and art on Tuesdays and Thursdays, but we actually do them all every day to some degree because we're doing the reading. Cause if the kids finish something before somebody else I say hey do a quick narration about what we learned yesterday or I might have them add something to their book of years when they have some time or yeah like you said with the big book of knowledge we'll we'll do some review so it kind of depends on our day we're pretty flexible with it but it kind of helps us complete the big projects and watch the videos and dive into it a little more deeply when we have days set up for it it gives you a bigger block of time so that, that's one of the reasons that we do a subject of the day so that we have this big block of time that we can spend for doing projects or watching a movie or different things that we do. And often we actually do a project while we're watching a movie or while I'm reading aloud to them. They're doing something hands-on. They can be making Sumerian seals while I'm reading to them about Mesopotamia. Yeah, that's, that's how we do it too. So if you were going to teach it daily, you'd probably spend like, 30 to 60 minutes per subject and then jump from subject to subject. Yeah. And, and there's, there is nothing wrong with doing it that way. I don't think that there is a weekly schedule that is the perfect way to do it. I think it just depends on what you want to do. I mean, try it and see what works. I think if you have all younger kids, 30 minutes is about their attention span. So that might be better. But by the time I had kids in high school who were, you know, writing that essay that we talked about, they needed more than 30 minutes to get it done, you know. So it just depends on your kids and your family and the phase that you're in. But if you were doing it daily, probably 30 to 60 minutes. If you're doing it either subject of the day or like I do the two subjects in a day, you're talking about more like one to two hours. Maybe three if it's just once a week. It just depends. Yeah. And, you know, some... I'm really flexible about that too. I don't actually look at my clock and say, okay, we're starting at 10 o'clock and we're ending at noon. I, I don't do it that way. We just, <laughs> there's no bell that rings right. and releases the kids. <laughs> right. We, we just, we, okay, it's time for history now. Cause we just finished math. So, you know, we just move into the next subject and we do it for as long as it takes. Yeah. We never know exactly how long our school day is going to be on any given day because it depends on what project we're doing and what we have going on. And, Truthfully, my kids never feel like, oh, we're stuck in school because we're having a really good time. They they aren't itching for the day to be over. I actually feel like that is one advantage that homeschoolers really have over public schoolers. Public schoolers, the teachers do have bells. They, they have to have a lesson plan that fits within their 50-minute or 90-minute class, whatever the time period is. You know, they have to make a lesson plan that fits it exactly it and can't they be too short moment. and it can't be too long it and we don't be... <laughs> yeah we don't have to worry about that we start when we start we end when we end you know yeah 
having it be in longer chunks like that really does allow you to do the hands-on projects that are going to help history just hop off the page in your family. And it gives you the chance to watch that video or read aloud while they work on a project without feeling like, oh no, the bell rang, we got to go on. So it actually is a really flexible way to do it. Okay, Karen, at the beginning of this podcast, you asked me if someone comes up to me and says, how do you teach history? What do you tell them? So now I'm going to ask you that question. <laughs> what do you do if somebody says, how do I teach history? Well, I'll definitely say I do really believe in teaching it in order like you do. And for sure, I believe in teaching it in context and not trying to project our current society on people in the past. I like it when my kids connect the things that we're learning with their lives in meaningful ways, especially like we discussed the human nature concepts and things like that. I love teaching with hands-on projects. I love reading stories and imagining what life was like for other people and really just embracing cultures that have existed throughout the story of our whole world. It's awesome when you look at it like a story instead of like a test. And you really can help history to come to life for your kids. So that's my goal as a history teacher is to help them remember it through having it be alive for them. And having it be fun, I think. Yeah. 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 I think it can be fun. I also want to add to that just that I think this is something that you taught me, Karen, is the the family school concept of doing projects together and having the whole thing be a family learning experience. Doing things as a family just makes it... It brings you together as a family. You all know the same things. You can discuss things together. You can talk about it over the dinner table. And, and that's been really valuable. Yeah. In, in a very real sense, people ask about our homeschool. And truthfully, that's just our life. We do it all together. So our homeschool is just our everyday life. We have awesome family memories of amazing reenacted battles period costumes, really fun projects. And that's what our family history is made of, is this homeschool history experience that we've enjoyed together. And you've got the videos to prove and it. We have family videos, <laughs> which I will not be publishing. Some of our costumes <laughs> are quite funny. <laughs> now they're gonna, there's going to be a clamor for you we, to... We have a whole dress-up box, and when it's time to act something out, I'm like, kids, go to the dress-up box. Find something good. <laughs> But it is fun. History is meant to be fun and it shouldn't be intimidating. It should be just an awesome part of your homeschool day. Yep. Just relax and learn together. That's the key to history. We hope you love teaching history as much as we do. Thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating wherever you listen. Ratings and comments help people find happy family style homeschooling. Visit us at layersoflearning.com, at Instagram, and on our Facebook group. And make sure to tune in next month for the next podcast. In the meantime, we wish you happiness in your homeschool. Have fun learning! learning.